Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Holyrood magazine. People do see Nicola Sturgeon as an empathetic politician, but I think in this respect, she's got to be careful that she doesn't start um, playing almost on a sympathy card that, that goes against her. It's not her place to decide if Alex Salmond is distressed or angry or upset at her. Well, I think a tea shop's pretty well covered. I mean, that's clear, unless they're slipping booze into the, you know, if it's like they're putting a bit of whiskey into the tea or something. I mean, um, I've always had abuse as a politician, um, but 30 years ago, if you wanted to abuse a politician, you wrote a letter, probably in ink, put it in an envelope, posted it, Um, whereas now you just press a button and you can send off dozens of messages of abuse. So first up, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. I have another uh, quite repetitive bad week this week, Mandy. Um, We've touched (laughs) on this previously, but this really a problem that isn't going away. It's not COVID, um, although that probably is, is generally a bad week. No, this is a bad week for infighting in the SNP. Yeah. This is, so again, this is referring back to the committee that we're now all calling the Salmond Inquiry. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think probably the SNP or certainly Nicola Sturgeon would wish that we were all suffering from the same selective amnesia that she and others within the government seem to be suffering from. Yeah, so it follows a kind of, I guess you could call it a fairly explosive appearance on, um, on the Sophie Ridge show. Yeah. Um, where she suggested that the reason that Alex Salmond is uh, very angry with her uh, may be because she refused to take part in any collusion or attempt to cover up um, allegations of harassment. Yeah, but this seems to be a common theme as well from Nicola Sturgeon, um, that she seems to be able to get inside Alex Salmond's head. So she told the committee inquiry last week um, that she had met with him, although she'd forgotten about a meeting that she'd had previously with his former chief of staff, where he had first told her of allegations that might might be arising around uh, Alex Salmon's behaviour of sexual misconduct. She'd forgotten about that meeting, Mm -hmm. which is interesting for a woman that is so um, known for her detail and precision, but she'd forgotten Mm -hmm. about that meeting. She remembered about that meeting. Um, she says so she met with Alex Salmond because she believed he would be very distressed. So she, first of all, she thinks he would be very distressed. Now she thinks he's very angry with her, even though they haven't spoken. So she's making some assumptions here. Well, I mean, I presume he probably is pretty angry with her, to be honest. Well, in fact, he said that he's not very angry with her. So, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, well, sorry, that's right. He was... It was an old line, wasn't it? It wasn't so much angry. It wasn't so much angry as disappointed in this case. Uh, not so much angry as astonished. By yeah, what she says um, she assumes that he is very angry with her um, because she didn't collude with him to body complaints of a sexual nature about him. Um, but I don't think anybody has yet said or asked her to collude with him or not. So this was basically um, findings from the inquiry the previous week where we discovered that Alex Salmond had raised the possibility 
um, but in fact the government and he should go into some kind of mediation or arbitration ahead of what became um, an abysmal failure of the Scottish Government to take him to judicial review or him to take them to judicial review. The outcome mm. was that the government lost this case and uh, it cost the taxpayer over half a million pounds. And what Salmond is basically saying is that he had offered three times, I think, for there to be some kind of very formal mediation um, to go on around the complaints procedure that had that this inquiry is now all about. Mm. And the, the Scottish Conservatives have now, um, I mean, they obviously picked up on the apparent contradictions in what Nicola Sturgeon said, um, pointing to an appearance in the Scottish Parliament in 2019, where she said she didn't feel under any pressure to intervene in the Scottish Government investigation, which does appear to be contradicted by her saying that, you know, she would, there was an expectation she would collude. Yeah, well, but also... She was saying that the first time she'd ever heard of any of these allegations around him also seems to now be disputed because people can point to the fact that she has now said that in 2017 she was aware that Sky News were investigating a story and had brought that story to the government about whether or not there'd been misconduct, bad behaviour by Alex Salmond at Edinburgh Airport. So she knew about that then. Mm. And yet she said the first time she'd ever heard of any allegations of um, his behaviour was much later. Yeah. And then I suppose in the background of all this, you've still got the committee complaining that they're unable to access any of the documents that they actually need to move forward. Linda Fabiani's repeatedly warned that she's finding basically obstinacy on all sides. Yeah. I have to say the thing that annoyed me or bothers me about the Sophie Ridge interview yesterday was that Nicola Sturgeon said that this is... Basically, this is not about her conduct. Well, actually, the inquiry is about her conduct. It's about what the government did, and that's the government that she leads. So she's bringing it back to a particular trope, which is about um, this is a man whose behaviour has been found wanting, and I think we can all agree that there were things during the criminal case um, which he, of course, won. Um, but there were aspects of that that would say we could say his behaviour was certainly not appropriate for the First Minister. And uh, the current First Minister is saying that this is an age-old situation where a man gets accused of misconduct and it's a woman her, who ends up having to answer for him. And actually, I, I think that's slightly unfair of her within this. Um, she does have to answer for her conduct within the context of what the Scottish Parliament inquiry is about. And that's what people have to keep going back to. These are different things. The criminal case was one thing, and uh, Alex Hammond was, won that, and he was acquitted. Um, the Scottish Parliament inquiry is absolutely about how the government acted um, around the complaints procedure and what led to a judicial review, which they then lost and cost the taxpayer a lot of money. Mm. And it's not going anywhere, is it? It's absolutely I mean, not going anywhere, no. And you've now seen Alex Cole Hamilton from the Scottish Liberal Democrats has, um, he's now pushing for an independent advisor to probe alleged breaches of the ministerial code. Um, so, I mean, that would be another front that they would then open up. Yeah. I mean, last week, you know, we had the whole, we, we were discussing this, it was a bit of deja vu, really, because we were talking about um, Nicola Sturgeon and her husband's role because he's the chief executive of the party and whether or not there was far too much of a closeness in terms of governance. And 
I just feel that this is going to continue. Um, at the moment, the inquiry, I think, is uh, not on for another two weeks while we're in recess. Um, but clearly, Alex Salmond is still to appear. I'm quite sure he will have a lot more to say. I mean, for once, he's keeping a very dignified silence, I would say, around all of this. He hasn't yeah, I mean, said anything. So despite the fact that Nicola Sturgeon is saying he's angry, we've certainly not seen any of that from him. I mean, if I was him and I saw that TV performance, I'd imagine I'd be pretty angry. But I suppose you're right. You've got no no way of knowing at the moment. He hasn't really said anything. Yeah. He's keeping his powder dry, I suppose, is how you put it. That's you yet again trying to imagine yourself as either a first minister or a former first minister. Well, I'm full of empathy, Mandy. I, mean, <laughs> I like to get into the heads of our political... I mean, actually, on empathy, I think that's what this all comes down to. At the end of the day, people do see Nicola Sturgeon as an empathetic politician. But I think in this respect, she's got to be careful that she doesn't start um, playing almost on a sympathy card that that goes against her. It's not mm. her place to decide if Alex Salmond is distressed or angry or upset at her. Um, this is about her role and her conduct and her government. Mm. And it hasn't been an easy week for... Um for the response to COVID either, really. I mean, this is the first time in a while, I think, that you've maybe seen public opinion starting to turn a little bit against the Scottish government's handling of um, of some of these new restrictions and the way that they were brought in. It yeah. sort of brings me to our good week, though, um, which I have down, which is for Donald Trump, who has apparently recovered from COVID. Yeah, an excellent week for Donald Trump, who yeah. has, uh, has had the virus, has beaten the virus, is now apparently immune to the virus. I mean, he's just a living testament to, to good science, really, isn't he? He's a living testament to having an enormous amount of money spent on his medical treatment. <laughs> I, <laughs> what you to I, mean, I, I tried to... <laughs> Actually, I tried to find out how much it cost, uh -huh. uh, you know, for the because the, the, he had, you know, really advanced treatment for this, including some sper experimental drugs. Yeah. Estimates suggest it was between a few hundred thousand dollars and maybe a million oh. um, that was spent on his treatment. And in the background of this, obviously, there's I think it's over 200,000 Americans have now been killed. And yet he said, do not be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. I think at one point he actually suggested he was quite pleased he had got it because he was proof that you can survive. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, and he's saying that all these drugs will be available to everybody that needs them. Which, Apparently. <laughs> I'm not sure any of us believe that. But actually, we also discovered, I think, this week that COVID can give you some very interesting symptoms that we hadn't heard of. Oh, yeah. Sorry, we're back to the SNP here, aren't we? A little bit, yeah, so this is Margaret Ferrier um, announcing, or I suppose you'd really have to say arguing, that uh, COVID can make you act out of character. And that's the reason that she broke all the guidelines repeatedly. Yeah, it's a good excuse though, isn't it? It was, it was strange because she'd previously said that she was sorry to have done all that stuff. And now, actually, it turns out it wasn't really her fault because she was under the control of the virus. I think that's fair enough. Yeah, it, does. it makes you wonder, doesn't it? <laughs> it means you could just blame anything. I'm just going to use that all the time, I think, now. I, I, yeah, you've been acting out of character for a while, Mandy. <laughs> Most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> you could blame that. Your dog's destroying your house. I would just blame that on the virus. You think the dog's... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> there's no character to compare that with, really. He's always yeah, done that. If anything, if he stopped, the, the, stopped destroying the house, I might think that he had COVID. No. Oh. But it is good news, I guess, about um, Donald Trump, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. And it means that they, I mean, the, the, it looks like it's now fallen into an argument about whether or not in-person debates could take place. He's trying to refuse to take part in any sort of virtual debate. I think if I was Joe Biden, and I know you're going to say I'm imagining I'm a presidential <laughs> candidate here, <laughs> I wouldn't want to debate Donald Trump in person at the moment. He says he's no longer contagious. I don't know how much evidence there is for that. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit like when someone claims. I think it sort of defeats Margaret Ferrier's argument because I think um, Donald Trump. Are you saying Margaret Ferrier's argument could be defeated? No, I think I think Donald Trump has and has the virus, and he's acting completely in character. So it hasn't That's changed true. his character at all, has it? No, no, it doesn't seem to have actually. I mean, he did. He, he took his mask off almost immediately upon returning. I, I um, thought that was done with a flourish. Did you? Did you think that was a nice little move? Yeah, little a nice touch? little move. Rip your mask off, be the strong man, then get in a car, force other people into a car with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure, everybody feels very well, safe around him. There were actually reports, I don't know how well substantiated these were, but there were reports that he was planning to wear a Superman t-shirt and <laughs> reveal that at some point. <laughs> You've made that up. No, I don't know. It might be like that that claim that he's obsessed with gorilla documentaries. All oh, right. I'm, so I'm I don't sure know. I don't it may not be entirely one. true. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a poor show when we think it's been a good week for Donald Trump just for surviving the virus. No, that's true. I mean, and actually, I suppose one thing you can say for Margaret Ferrier is that with everything else that's going on in in Scottish politics, it probably hasn't had as much attention that story as otherwise would. She's still clinging on to the job and apparently believes that she's going to stay there. Yeah. You know, if, if this had happened a few years ago, and I know I've been saying that for years, but <laughs> these stories didn't just used to move on like this. Yeah, and actually, I suppose that takes us on to where we're trying to get to, because it's that question of what does it take for a politician now to resign? Um, But really, have our politicians changed with time? And in this next um, magazine coming up, we've got an interview with Diane Abbott, who obviously has been a politician around for a long time. Um, And and that's a really interesting interview, and I think we're going to hear a little bit of that now. We're doing this um, sort of prompted by your uh, authorised biography. The first thing I wanted to ask you was why, um, you know, what what prompted you to get involved with this project? Well, um, one of the writers, Robin Bunce, who's Cambridge academic, mm. he did a really good um, biography of a man called Darkus Howe, yeah. who was a very um, prominent uh, black activist. And I... I happened to review it and I was really impressed by Robin's feel for the black politics of the era. And he approached me and said, could I do your biography? And I thought, why not? So it wasn't part of some great plan. Um, I'd been impressed by a biography he'd written of another black politician. And he asked me to do me. Fair enough, yeah. So, you know, it's 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 very much a, a political uh, biography. It's a uh, it, it, it's it's, a, it's charting your your journey through politics. It's not setting out to be a personal biography. But one of the things I think that the questions that it raises for me is, you know, it does obviously talk a lot about um, the challenge and certainly in more recent years the barrage of abuse that you have um, experienced and I wanted to, to, to find out from you 
how that has changed you as a person. I mean, social media obviously um, facilitates and, and, and enables that sort of thing. But it wouldn't be true to say, would it, that this was your first, you know, that, that it all started with social media. For you, this is something that you've experienced all the way back. Yes, I mean, um, I've always had abuse as a politician. Um, but 30 years ago, if you wanted to abuse a politician, you wrote a letter, probably in ink, put it in an envelope, and posted it. Um, whereas now you just press a button and you can send off dozens of messages of abuse. And there's no question that social media, and in particular the anonymity of social media, has vastly increased the volume of misogynist and racist abuse. Yeah. And has it, tell me how it, how, how it changes you as a politician when you are a lightning rod for that, when you in particular are singled out, what, what does it do to you as a person and a politician? It's not changed me as a politician. I mean, it's not changed what I believe in and it's not changed the issues um, that I work on. But it is, it, it, is, it is painful and it's meant to be painful and it is corrosive and it's meant to do that as well. It's really meant to drive you out of public life. Mm. But I think I can say it's not been successful in doing that. But, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you must have a very thick skin. I don't have a thick skin. I find it very painful. Yeah. But I'm committed to doing my job. So mm. I keep on keeping on. Looking back, I mean, we've, we've had momentous, um, you know, events this summer um, with, with Black Lives Matter. How racist is Britain now compared to the 1970s and 80s, would you say? Well, I think in terms of race, things have got better. Um, you know, in the 70s, it was very unusual, very unusual to see black television presenters, black business people, black lawyers and barristers, um, black doctors even. And I think now in, in the past decades, you see many more black people in the professions and in business and as television presenters, uh, than you saw before. Um, and I think people, white people, are a little bit more aware of racial uh, microaggression mm. than they were. Um, but there's still a great deal more to do. That's what the Black Lives Matter movement is about. And do, do you think that will produce a step change and a, a permanent um, lasting change in, in, in sort of British public's, the white British public's perception of racial injustice? That those, you know, the events of the summer and the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's very interesting. The polling shows that um, Black Lives Matter has a lot of support from white people, particularly younger. <laughs> I think they do understand the issue. Sorry, is that? Oh, I thought I heard a door bang. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> that's something that's happening here. Sorry. It's, um, okay. Um, I think particularly younger people who may have gone to school or university alongside people of colour, they're a lot more open about race. Mm. 
than people were 30 years ago. Yeah. So I think, I think things are moving forward. I think, I think we're generally in a more global world. So people are more open. So I think gradually we are moving forward on issues of racial justice. Yeah. Talking more generally about uh, uh, you know racism and, and immigration, how hostile um, do you think this government is um, to immigration compared to others of the last forty years? Well, I'm afraid that over the forty years, most governments have been not very positive about immigration. I mean, if you go back years um, and the way the then Labour government treated um, Asians from East Africa, mm. go so far as to put ads in, uh, put ads um, in the, these East African countries telling people not to come. Um, I'm afraid both political parties have been complicit in immigration and asylum legislation, which is basically quite hostile. I mean, I think to the Labour Party's credit, it's also been responsible for race relations legislation and setting up the Commission for Racial Equality and so forth. Mm. But when it comes to, I say, issues around immigration and asylum, um, both parties have things that they should perhaps not have done at the time. I think what happens is that politicians, including Labour politicians, get driven by the media. And um, on immigration, the media tends to fall prey to scare stories, whether it's East African Asians, whether it's Romanians, whether it's, you know, it, there's always some ethnic group or Eastern Europeans, there's always some um, ethnic group which is seen as a threat and the media hypes it up and uh, politicians respond to that. Mm. I, there's a view, isn't there, that um, the left has, has tended to concede too much ground to the right uh, over uh, 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 the years uh, on immigration which is sort of what you're uh, alluding to there and that there's not been enough of an effort made to to make the positive case for immigration would you agree with that it depends you're saying the left i'm talking about successive governments and some of those obviously were labor governments and i think the labor party in government as i said have been responsible for immigration asylum legislation, which was, which was predicated on the idea that immigration asylum was a problem and a threat. Mm. Mm. But having said that, some of the most committed fighters um, against racism and against anti-immigrant feelings are people on the left. And you can't say that about Tories. Mm. Okay, so can the British people, you know, be won over from this point with arguments about the benefits of immigration, the need for immigration, and arguments against strict controls? I say at this point because, you know, there's a view that some of the 
Brexit vote was, was motivated by anxieties about immigration? Well, I thought about immigration and the anxiety of working people um, about immigration goes back hundreds of years. In 1870, Karl Marx wrote to some of his followers, I think they're in London, and the, the anti-immigrant feeling he was talking about was anti-Irish immigration feeling. And he, he was trying to say to them that this anti-Irish feeling, and you can still see the legacy of it in the cities up and down the country, whether it's Glasgow, whether it's Manchester, whether it's London. Um, but in 1870, Marx was saying that this kind of anti-Irish feeling actually weakened and divided the working class. Mm. And I think that's an important argument, which is still worth making today. As I say, I mean, if, if I look back over my political lifetime, um, attitudes have gradually modified. And I think younger people who've been brought up in a very globalised world are much more open. So right. I, I am positive that you just don't have to give in to racism. I'm positive that you can make progress on these issues. Right. There was a time to, to, to talk about something slightly different mm -hmm. on LGBT rights. People said, oh, no, people will never come around to it and we can't talk about it and, and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And I've lived to see a Tory prime minister bring in same-sex marriage. You can move public opinion on these social issues but you have to be brave enough to do it yeah so the, the, you're talking really about about um you know would it be fair to call that the march of progress that kind of implies that you know it's all going in one direction do you ever worry that these um advances could be reversed no i don't think progress is inevitable that's not what i'm saying mm. i'm saying whether you're talking about women's rights which, you know, decades and decades ago, um, one that you couldn't take for granted at all. What I'm saying is, when you're talking about women's rights, whether you're talking about racial justice, whether you're talking about equality for gay and lesbian people, you do have to campaign, you do have to struggle, you do have to take the argument forward, mm. but it is possible to make progress, but nothing's inevitable. On a, on a kind of related but, but slightly different issue, the other thing that we've seen a lot of this summer is debate about Britain's um, past and you know the legacy of the past. Do you feel that Britain um, is coming to terms with the, the bad as well as the good in its past? Is this something that needs to be addressed more sort of robustly what 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 do you think what what's been your thoughts on that as you've watched events unfold this summer well um there was a lot of hostile commentary when the black lives matter demonstrators pulled down that um statue of uh, a slave owner in bristol yeah. uh, mm. but you know they took direct action and i heard more debate and discussion about the role of slavery and the money that Britain made from slavery after they took direct action than before. So they did, they did help to bring the debate forward. And I think that, um, I certainly think 
that people should know more about um, Britain's history. And also, because what you normally learn about slavery, I mean, I didn't, I didn't learn anything about slavery at school. And I did um, what in England, I did A-level history. I did a degree in history and I didn't learn anything about slavery. Um, but I think there could be more done to have a more rounded curriculum so people actually under all children mm. understood the role of slavery and colonialism and empire in Britain's history. I mean, if you're in Glasgow, you can see street names and statues to people that made their money out of slavery and the tobacco trade and so on. And people need to know and understand it like every other aspect of history. Because mm. if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going. Mm. Moving on to, to, to talk a, a bit more then about, about Labour and um, recent events then for, for the Labour Party. Um, Labour together published a report in, in June of this year about the 2019 election defeat, um, which they described as terrible and said that it posed profound questions about the future prospects of the party. And they pointed to underlying weaknesses in Labour's vote share going back 20 years but also talked about Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity by the time of the election, about confused Brexit policy, the perception that the manifesto was unrealistic, um, and also that, that you know, Labour was becoming a party of city dwellers. Um, what does Labour need to do to win next time? Well, if I, if I could, uh, if I could, tell you that in a sentence um, <laughs> uh, uh, that would be remarkable I, um, but in terms of what happened in 2019 Brexit was an issue because so many historically um, secure Labour constituencies voted leave and so particularly in the post-industrial areas where a lot of those constituencies were leave constituencies um, they, the Brexit and the slogan, let's get Brexit done, um, that was very difficult for us. Mm. Uh, I don't think we're a party of city dwellers, I think that's nonsense. Um, because you can go up and down the country in suburbs and rural areas and find Labour voters. Um, I, I do think beyond Brexit, there's an issue with post-industrial Britain, and that includes some Scottish constituencies. And I think that in the new Labour years, there was a tendency to take what seemed to be absolutely rock solid uh, post-industrial constituencies, coal-filled constituencies. There was a tendency to take them for granted. Um, uh, MPs parachuted in. We didn't have any particular relationship with the constituency at all. Um, and I think over time that and the absence of a proper industrial policy by New Labour, that over time weakened our, our strength in post-industrial constituencies and then Brexit dealt the final blow really. But you, you have to go back decades. Um, have to go back to the Labour years to see how our roots 
in that kind of post-industrial constituency weakened. Um, and that is something we need to look at. It is about listening to local parties and it is about encouraging people to become involved in the party and empowering people. Um, uh, Jeremy's unpopularity was unsurprising, really. I don't think there was a day when Jeremy wasn't abused in the national press. Um, uh, he was supposed to be an Eastern European spy, extraordinary stuff. I mean, all Labour leaders get attacked, but with Jeremy, it was phenomenal. And there's been academic research which shows that. And it would be hard for anybody to withstand that level of uh, negative coverage in media. And then you had the... Um, the new party, um, the um, I forget because they kept calling it different names, Change UK or whatever it was. Um, but you see, we, we had that before. We had that with the Social Democratic Party, which split off from the Labour Party, claiming that it was going to be a substitute for the Labour Party. It did nothing of the kind. Just like Change UK was never going to be a national party. What it did do, what it did with the Social Democratic Party and what it did with Change UK this time around, is it helped secure a Tory victory? Okay. And you mentioned, um, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn there. Um, what, what do you think will be the lasting legacy of his era? Well, one of the things is that we have a much bigger and we have a much more progressive, actually, party. The other thing is the Parliamentary Labour Party. We now have, I think, I think we, we certainly have more women and more members of Parliament of Colour than we've ever had. Mm. Um, and uh, the campaign group, which I'm a member of, which is a group for left-wing MPs, is the biggest it's ever been. So I think Jeremy's lasting legacy is a parliamentary Labour Party, which is definitely more left-wing than any parliamentary Labour Party I've been a member of, and definitely has more women and more people of colour. And that's a good thing. I think it's important that Parliament looks like Britain. And also what we found, I remember when I came in in 87, there were just four black MPs, mm. four black and Asian MPs, in the entire Parliament, because Labour produced the only four. Um, and... What happened is that, as it were, kind of triggered the other parties to do something because it just looked so terrible that the, the, that the Tories and the Lib Dems and then the SNP were all white. Although obviously I know the SNP did have, a, did have a MPs of colour. Uh, and does have MPs and members of the Scottish Parliament of colour. And so if Labour is so much more diverse and has so much more women, that means that the other political parties will follow. So I think that's a really positive thing, and I think that's very much part of Jeremy's legacy. And do you think that, that uh, Keir Starmer is more likely to achieve electoral success than, than Jeremy Corbyn was? Well, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, all I can say is, is that Keir Starmer won the leadership election fair and square 
and you have to respect that mandate and I do respect his mandate. Mm. Obviously this country needs the Labour government more than ever so we do have to hope that we can achieve victory at the next general election whenever that is. Mm. And, and if, if that means you know cleaving more to this towards the centre a bit in order to 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 win a majority, would that receive your blessing? Well, when Keir was campaigning to be the leader, he went out of his way, and he said this more than once, that he wasn't proposing to abandon Labour values, and he wasn't proposing to abandon the progressive uh, politics that we've seen in the last five years. Mm. Um, so that commitment to Labour values and progressive politics, that's what he committed himself to, and you have to assume he meant it. Well, look, thank you very much, uh, Diane, for all of your time. Well, thank you very much. Okay, so it's now time for the rant of the week. That's a chance for Mandy to get something off her chest, something that's been bothering her. Recently, we've had a few fiery responses. I don't know if you've got anything this week, Mandy. Well, I, I'm not sure it's just me that's a bit annoyed about this, but I think the confusion around a cafe or a restaurant or a bar, mm. um, I mean, it, it does seem to come down to basically your taste i think and, and so this is following the introduction of new restrictions um where some people did ask for clarification over the difference between a restaurant a cafe and a bar and i think the official response was that they should really know themselves yeah <laughs> if you if you don't know you should shut up shop well no it made me glad that i'm not a bar yeah um, it's just one of the first times in my life that i've ever had to consider that but i do know i'm not so it's fine they should have had something like um if you can say scone or scone or an empire biscuit or a german biscuit that could have been the defining moment of whether or not you were a bar or a tea shop or a restaurant yeah yeah you could have bartenders all around scotland desperately trying to learn how to make fancy coffees to prove that they are in fact actually a cafe or just a barista <laughs> i mean do you think that you would you say you have a thorough understanding of the difference between these different establishments I feel this is a test it is a test, actually. <laughs> I've got a test because I was thinking, you know, like we sit here and we, we, we're judging people all the time, aren't we? Yeah. We're pouring scorn over them, well, we're criticising them. judgmental than me. Well, I am, yes, of course. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm essentially horrible, which is why I've made this yeah. test rather than having to yeah, do it. Um, so I thought, you know, Mandy Rhodes wouldn't sit here with a rant, you know, and start criticising people and saying they don't understand the difference and the guidance is unclear unless she knew herself. Yeah. So... I thought you could, first of all, my first question is, what is the difference between a cafe and a restaurant? So I would say a restaurant is somewhere where you um, get dressed up to go to. and, um, <laughs> and um, such a funny and, way to define yeah, that. And you drink wine. Okay. And, I mean, that's, that already feels full of holes to me. <laughs> and, and a cafe you would go to the next day with a hangover to have um, a greasy breakfast. Okay. Now, I think that stands up a bit better than the dressing up fancy and drinking wine thing. I mean... Well, what do you do in a restaurant? Well, it could be a cheap restaurant, couldn't it? I might drink beer. <laughs> I don't know. I might drink... Oh, okay. Uh, what would you eat in your restaurant where you're drinking beer? Well, that, see, that's what, that's what would define it. Like, if I went, so if I went out for uh, Indian food, I might have beer with that, you know? That'd be reasonable. You can't criticise that. 
isn't it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. What if it was a cafe, but it was owned by French people and that they served cool. wine? All oh, right, okay. Actually, that does bring me to my next. So what's the difference between a bistro and a brasserie? Nothing. Nothing. No, you would, t- you would drink wine. Okay, what if the food is Most left out? Things that are French <laughs> would involve right. drinking wine. So just no French people can run hospitality businesses in Scotland now under your new regime. Oh, uh, you probably know one, don't you? <laughs> I haven't brought a French person here. Le greasy spoon. Yeah. Well, um, what about a tea shop? Well, I think a tea shop's pretty well covered. I mean, that's clear, unless they're slipping booze into the, you know, if it's like they're putting a bit of whiskey into the tea or something. Well, I was about to say that because then you get all these um, uh, offers where you can have high tea, but actually what's in the teapot is an alcoholic cocktail. Well, that's true. That's true. Actually, I would say that it's, it's not the teapot there that defines it. I don't work for the licensing board, but I think it's the content. Yeah. I mean, actually, what, what I noticed at the weekend was that there were queues outside of cafes where previously people would probably have been going to the pub. I you know, you'll have people sitting there for hours. It's fairly simple that you, with the new restrictions, if you serve alcohol, you should be shut. Mm, oh, well, what if you only? What if you do serve alcohol, wine? but it's not? What if it's not the basis of your business? What if you, you know, there is alcohol available, but generally you sell tea and coffee and you know, fruit yeah. juice. The thing is, amid all of this, I was thinking about, um, you know how poor Rishi Sunak's now being blamed for everything? So um, <laughs> he was the most popular chancellor for a short moment in time, but now his whole eat out to help out campaign is being A, blamed for the spike in um, infections, but also for the fraud that's been involved. Mm. So yeah. you know, alleged fraud, but people that have takeaways, but they've got one little table where you would normally, you know, sit reading some B-day old newspaper while you're waiting for your takeaway to be prepared. They're yeah. now putting that through as somebody coming in and sitting eating in. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, not good, obviously, in a legal way. One pizza franchisee has apparently um, raked in about a quarter of a million pounds on this. They raked that in, did they? They raked that in. <laughs> and that's without alcohol. So the whole, um, what is a restaurant, what is a cafe, I don't know, it's, uh, it costs us a lot of money if we get it wrong. Well, I'm just awaiting complaints from people that run brasseries and would like to point out that they're absolutely not a bistro. Really? I think a brasserie is a bistro. No, I don't know. I mean, I suppose this is one area where you could say that politicians could act. They could act indeed. I think they have. It's just the rest of us don't quite understand the rules. I didn't look. Yeah. There we go. I'm off for a drink. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.